0: All right, what are evangelical Christians? Do y'all know what evangelical Christians are? You hear that term a lot today. Some of us, it's now come to be mostly about a political affiliation, like the religious right. But uh, historically, um, the term was uh, referring to Christians across all denominations and non-denominations that profess Jesus as Savior and Lord, uh, that believe the scriptures are the word of God, that are committed passionately to a missional commitment to the Great Commission, uh, making disciples, or what we're saying, um, committed to gospel growth and people work. Uh, also, they're church members or regular attenders of such a church, an evangelical church. Are you with me? All right. Barna has researched that the national, on the national average for evangelical Christians, that most evangelical Christians agree that the most significant spiritual undertaking of the church is worship. Uh, that worship is the center of the church, worship is the engine of the church, that worship, what happens here is the engine for teaching, an engine for community, an engine for outreach and for relational evangelism and relational engagement and friendship with those that don't know Jesus, uh, for mercy, for overseas missions, for all levels of activity and mission in the church that worship is central. All right, I'll agree with that. Um, why? Because God is in the center. God is the center of the church. God is the engine of the church and worship keeps God in the center, okay? Now, here's what's stunning. Uh, All the majority of evangelical Christians agree with that, right? But two thirds of these folks say they have never experienced God's presence in a worship service. Uh, That is stunning. So we're all in agreement that that this is center, this is the engine, this is the fuel. And yet two-thirds of us, when we're polled, will say, I haven't um, experienced a cosmic collision with God in a worship service. That's breathtaking. I'm going to give you the quote first, and I'm going to tell you who said it. Who said it will blow your mind, those of you that are familiar with church history. Here's the quote. It behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. So he's saying this quote, whoever, whatever we worship, we become like it. So let's say, what if we worship money? We become like what? Money. So what's money like? Is money um, full of freedom and peace and fullness and security? and significance, and life? Is money generous and giving, or is money greedy and craving? Is money secure or insecure? Is money personal or impersonal? We become what we worship. Okay, well, what if what if we worship approval? We worship the approval of people and we worship our own self-approval. We become like approval. Well, what's approval like? I mean, is approval full of other and self-evaluation? Judgments, opinions, standards, measurements, criticisms, critiques, preoccupations? Uh, is is approval like living life in a courtroom, always on trial, before people, before yourself, and you hang in the balance. What's approval like? You become what you worship. Now, who said this quote? Who said it? Ralph Waldo Emerson, an American deist, an American transcendentalist. You know what that means? He didn't believe that that there's a sinful nature in human beings, or, or good, not broken. He didn't believe that you needed a substitutionary Savior. He didn't believe that the Bible was the Word of God. Uh, what else did he didn't believe in? That's good enough, right? Didn't believe in the Trinity, but he got that right. He got the dynamics of biblical worship in the human being. He got what the whole scripture theme flows over with and over with in different layers and different chapters and in different stories from beginning to end that we become what we worship. What do we worship? There's an old story about a man who dreamed an angel took him to church one Sunday and there he saw the pianist playing vigorously like Chris Matlock over here. Musicians playing their instruments skillfully. Uh, lead singers, leading professionally, but he didn't hear a sound. Shockingly, he was like, what? So he quickly looked out and he said, he could see the congregation was singing, but again, no sound, no volume, no life. He couldn't hear. He started getting nervous. And so when the preacher got up to preach and he stood to speak, he fixated on his lips and said, yes, they're even moving. Pages are turning in his notes, but I don't hear a thing there's no sound there's no volume it's utterly and completely mute nothing so now he's completely confused and he is starting to hyperventilate and get a little anxious so he turns to his angel um, counselor or supervisor or the guy that's with him and says what's going on and the angel said this is the way it sounds to us in heaven You hear nothing because there's nothing to hear. These people are engaged in the form of worship, but their thoughts are on other things. Their hearts are far away. This is what we hear in heaven. Um, This morning, Jesus goes to church. It should be pretty interesting. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. I'm told by our expert reader Dave Hunt who's coming up here right now this will take 4 minutes. So, it's my fault. This is the length of the passage. If you need to sit down, nobody will think less of you except me. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> I should be gone by 11:08. From Mark 11 Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. They went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. And does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says, it will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is also in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. What was the baptism of John, from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it one with another. If we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The word of the Lord. Thanks
0: be to God. Please be seated. Thanks, bro. Don't you love how that ends? Neither will I tell you. Be seated. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that uh, your word uh, works wonders, and we thank you that your word is full of wonders, and we ask that now you would unleash your Spirit in such a way that you would capture our hearts and our minds and that you would preach uh, deep into our souls and reach us with the wonders of you and we ask this in jesus name amen okay today this morning right now in your text begins a week in jerusalem we're finally here we're in jerusalem we had that final stretch teaching to get to jerusalem chapter 10 well we're here and now begins the last week of Jesus' life So the rest of the book of Mark is about the last week of Jesus' life. It's commonly called the Passion Week. Now the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, spend one quarter of their writings on this week. The exception is John, he spends half his writing just on this last week, seven days, right? 11 through 16. Um, Why the amount of coverage on this last week? Why is it significant? Because this tells us we cannot understand Jesus' identity and mission unless we understand this last week. In other words, everything that even came before Jesus, we can't fully grasp without the lens of this last week. This last week is the interpretive lens of all the Gospels. It's the interpretive lens of the New Testament. It's the interpretive lens of the Old Testament. It's the interpretive lens by which you actually get your own life and get the cosmos and get the universe. It is the interpretive lens of all reality, the last week. So this is a big deal, isn't it? Now, where does Jesus go? What's the first place he visits on the last week? Because it should be a very significant place. Uh, It should be loaded with impact. You see where he goes? The temple. He goes to church. He goes to worship. Now, the first part of chapter 11 is commonly called, this is a big, big chapter, so we're going to move through it fairly quickly, but there is a, a rhyme and a reason to it. Follow me. The first chapter is commonly called the triumphal procession of Jesus, right? We in the church historically call it Palm Sunday. Uh, even the top of your Bible has a, a, an entry that's titled that. The triumphal entry of Jesus. Theologically, or what it means, is this. The king has come to claim his kingdom. I mean, look at verse 7. And they brought the cult to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. This is what kings do. Uh, This has been foretold in the Old Testament, and this is what ancient Near Eastern kings have done and Roman and Greco kings have done since the beginning of their civilizations. Kings come in on a cult to claim their kingdom. Verse eight, and many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Again, the procession of a king. Verse nine, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, which means literally save us, we pray. Save us. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. The connections made. This is the the promised one, the son of David that will come and bring in a cosmic kingdom here on earth. So the king has arrived. He's here. We expect a triumphal entry. I mean, it's been building to this entry, right? And remember what the good news is. The good news is about a king that actually does good tidings and good things. He actually accomplishes what we don't accomplish. He actually performs what we can't. He actually defeats and crushes enemies. And all we can do is live in the good news that it's done for us. All we can do is say, he did it. He won. It's over. We're free, right? Incredible good news. Matthew says when he's reporting on this account, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Luke reports that the city was electric. Luke actually says that the trees and the stones had to be held back from crying out. So there is a Narnia. There is Middle Earth. Animals do talk. Trees and rocks will speak, I guess, right? But what Mark's account is so noteworthy, Mark's account is different from all the other accounts, not in what it records happening, but what it records not happening. Mark's triumphal entry fizzles. It just fizzles. It comes to nothing. We're expecting a bang and we get a bust. Do you see that? It's anticlimactic. Verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. He just went home. Did you see that phrase? We've seen it before. He looked around at everything. Remember what looked around means. It's used six times of Jesus. And every time it's 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 this vision in which Jesus looks around and he sees to the roots of everything, ultimate reality at its root. It's laid bare. It's like he has x-ray vision. It's like he has the detail of an MRI. And he looks and when he examines and he scrutinizes, he perceives, he sees all of reality, all the way down to the foundations and all of reality down to the roots as it really is. And so the king comes into the city and the king comes to the temple and he has this commanding survey of the temple operation and the worship industry of Israel. And he walks away. He just walks away. So, why does Jesus walk away from the temple? Why does Jesus walk away from the worship industry of Israel? Chapter 11 gives us three reasons. That's why we have this big, huge chapter. There are three reasons here, and they're in each of those paragraphs that follow. The first reason I'm going to give to you I'm going to give the reasons right out loud, and then we're going to see them. Are you ready? Here's the first reason He walks away from the industry of worship in Israel because it has no power. There's no power in it. There's no fruitfulness in it. How do we know that? That's the point of the fig tree in 12 through 14. Look at your text in the bulletin. Now, this is the only miracle of destruction recorded in all the Gospels. There's not another miracle in all the Gospels where there's this cursing or what's called a miracle of destruction historically. Philosopher Bertrand Russell said Jesus is acting in vindictive fury here because Jesus is blaming the tree for not having fruit. In other words, Jesus is blaming the tree for not meeting his needs. How selfish, the philosopher says. So Jesus doesn't get what he wants he throws a temper tantrum. That's how Bertrand Russell sees it. And he says, he goes on to say, this is like so tarnishing to Jesus' character. It completely tarnishes who he is. So what is going on there? I mean, is Russell right? If only Bertrand Russell would have read the first ever interpretation or earliest interpretation of this passage. In other words, when a a student of the Bible comes along and they read the Bible and then they write about it, it's called a commentary. The very first commentary on this passage happened in 5th century. So this is what, the 400s, right? And it's by a guy named Victor of Antioch. And he said, Victor said, it's an enacted parable, which means it's a parable that's acted out in real life. And so it's more than just speaking. It's a visible display of teaching in real life. And it's so impactful that notice when you go on, when we heard the rest of the reading, it greatly impacted the disciples. They were saying, Jesus, there's the victory," And they started remembering passages from the Old Testament when they were kids because of this enacted parable. So what is it enacting? It's enacting the symbolization of barrenness in Israel's worship. It symbolizes that when you go to Israel's temple and you go to the worship service, you expect to see worship but you don't. You expect to see power and fruitfulness, but you don't. Just like when you go up and you see a fig tree that has green leaves on it, you expect to find fruit. So the worship industry has the form of worship, but it doesn't have worship. It's doing everything right. But there's no worship. And so Jesus walks away from the temple because it has no power in it. It has no life in it. It has no fruitfulness in it. So why does Jesus walk away from the temple? No power. Second reason, the temple's getting in God's way. Do you see that? This is the point of Jesus going all MMA in the temple. Did you see that? Verse 15 through 19. We got an ultimate fight going on here. Here's what's so shocking about this passage. Not the sheer violence that's happened in the passage. Not the fact that he's overturning and he's yelling and he's bringing and cracking whips and he's pushing people along and he's knocking stuff out of their hands. That's not what's most shocking. And he's doing this without sinning. I mean, how do you do that? Do not try that at home. There should be a warning at the bottom of this passage. Do not try at home. Only professional saviors can do this, right? He only can do this. And he does it sinlessly. That's not what's most shocking here. You know what's most shocking here? The business of the church. In this context, it's the worship business. The business of the church is getting in the way of God. That's what's shocking. In other words, the business of the church, the worship of the church is getting in the way of the mission of God. So we got to ask ourselves what's the mission? You know, what are we supposed to be a part of and not get in the way of? Even in a worship service. Here's the answer. Reaching the unchurched. Reaching the unchurched. Do you see where Jesus is focusing all his energy in this unbelievable physical, violent encounter? Do you see where he's driving out all those who bought and sold, where he's overturning tables and seats and where he's knocking stuff out of people's hands and won't let them carry it across anymore? It's all happening in one place. It's called the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles is the place where God reaches the unchurched. The court of the Gentiles is the place that God set up For the unchurched to find Him, the court of the Gentiles is the place of welcome for the nations. It's the place in the temple that is missionary. You got this temple complex, and this is the missionary part of the temple complex. Do you see that? Here, Gentile sinners are supposed to be reached by His grace, and are supposed to be reached by His love, and are supposed to be rescued in their sin. Look at verse 17. Is it not written? Jesus is saying, listen, this is nothing new. Is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? The nations mean Gentiles. The nations mean unreached people. The nations mean those who aren't churched. Presbyterian pastor, theologian, seminary professor, and missionary. Wow. Wow. Jack Miller wrote of this passage, Jesus is standing there. He sternly takes it all in, the haggling over the money, the bleeding of the sheep. Now we're talking thousands. We're talking hundreds of thousands of sheep and hundreds of thousands of pigeons and hundreds of thousands of animals in this area. Everyone buying and they're getting their sacrifices. It's good stuff. the bleeding of the sheep he sees and the confusion he sees of the Gentile worshipers. No one welcomes them. No one teaches them the promises of grace. No one is calling them to the brokenness over their sin. And Jesus is greatly grieved. And he goes MMA. So don't miss this. God's mission to reach the church is supposed to happen according to Jesus, even in the worship service. The foundation and fuel for the mission go all the way back to the original design of the temple. David and Solomon's design from God was to have a court of the Gentiles. It was the missionary part of the whole worship complex. It is the center, the temple is the center of the Of the universe. It's not just the center of Israel. It was the center of the universe and it was the center of worship because God is central and God is the center and God is the fuel of the church. And right there in the Old Testament from the very earliest stages was to reach the unreached. There is no worship, Jesus the same, without mission. It is never, ever just about us here right now. It is always about us and always about our neighbor. It's always about us and it's always about those that aren't here. It's always about us and it's not an either or. It's not a false choice between one or the other. Well, do we do seeker-sensitive church or do we do traditional church? It's a false dichotomy. It's both and. Always. Always always. All right, why did Jesus walk away from the temple worship? No power, no mission or getting in God's way to reach the unchurched, the third reason. What's the third reason? You see it? It's going to start happening now in the rest of those passages. Here's the reason, no Jesus. No gospel-centered worship. This is the point of In 20 through 25, do you see that where you have this faith moving mountains? It's kind of wild to think about. And what does that mean? It's not that your faith moves mountains. It's that your faith trusts in the mountain mover. In other words, faith moves mountains because faith embraces the one that does move mountains. Remember, that was the answer. They come up and they look at the, the... Withered fig tree and it's withered at the root and Jesus turns to him and says the exact opposite of this withering the exact opposite of this cursing is faith in me. Faith in God. It'll move mountains. In other words, primary spiritual fruitfulness. Comes from only one source. The mountain mover. Building your life around one who moves mountains, power, life, spiritual fruitfulness. That's the point also of, you see that forgiveness part in verses 20 through 25? That's also the point here. Forgiveness moves hearts. Because forgiveness of sins is the primary feature of faith. Because the primary feature of faith is actually pointing to the very essence of who God is the forgiveness of sins gets to the very heart of God, that God loves sinners. He loves them. He doesn't hate them. Or we wouldn't be here. The very center of Jesus' worship is the heartbeat of God, which is, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive. Love to forgive. I pursue your forgiveness. I want to take out your sin. I delight to cover you. I want to remove it from you. I came to bear it for you, Jesus is saying. And then that's the last point of that whole authority challenge that's going on there with the religious leaders. There's only one authority. There's only one. And they're challenging it because they're seeing it. See what's happening? They've now seen him walk into and clear out the temple, the court of the Gentiles. They see how he's challenged. They see how he's carrying such authority, so they're going to challenge it. And this passage is basically saying there's only one who has ultimate authority. There's only one who has the authority to reach you. There's only one who has the power to rescue you. There's only one who can remake you. There's only one who can restore you. There's only one who has the power to create a worshiper, a real worshiper there's only one and Jesus authority which is questions what it means is this authority actually one of the roots of authority is author that's in the word so authority has author to and what it means is that Jesus has original power Jesus has original authority Jesus has he's the original author he's the original power he's the original authority He's not like, he didn't teach like, and he didn't act like, and he didn't move like those that work off secondary authority and secondary power like the rabbis. They're working off the Torah. They might be gifted at it. They might enlighten you. They might help you. Teachers do that, but they're operating off secondary source material. I operate off secondary source material. Pastors, ministers, missionaries, Bible teachers, we are secondary teachers acting off primary source material, right? And in professors, you know that you're working off of really secondary kind of material. Um, But Jesus is the original. He's the primary source material. He's the author. In other words, when he speaks, it is reality. And when he speaks, it reaches down into the foundations and roots of reality. When he goes out and speaks, his words go to the bottom of your heart and change it. When he speaks, it is reality. So when Jesus goes to the cross, his ultimate authority and power is seen and displayed in his death. And his death actually creates reality, the reality of forgiveness of sins. And the reality of actually being free from sin, from its dominion and its control and its mastery. And when he rises from the dead, he ushers in reality. It is reality. It's ultimate reality. Now he unleashes an unearned righteousness that's more real than the seat you sit in. And so it is that. And he unleashes an unearned new life now. And he unleashes an unearned intimacy and love and friendship with God now. And he unleashes an unearned community and friendship with others now and a love for others that we didn't have before. These are now a th- author-like realities. He has ultimate authority, ultimate power. He creates it. He is it. He's not like the rest of those at that time. All right, so here's the, the windup. Jesus walks away from religious worship. Why? Because it has no power. It has no mission. It actually gets in the way of God's mission. It gets in the way of reaching the unchurched. And then lastly, there's no Jesus so what's fascinating about all this, if you notice in your Bibles, what does it say? Jesus cleanses the temple when he goes in there. He's not cleansing the temple. He's not purifying it. He's replacing it. He's saying, this is going away because I'm the temple. I am the better temple. I'm not here to reform this thing. I'm not here to fix it and tweak it. I'm not here to make changes. I'm here To get rid of it. Because I'm the temple. When you put your trust in the true temple, you move mountains. Why?
1: Because Jesus runs to that kind of faith. He never walks away. Amen.